0: Today, we have another of our recorded lectures for you from our history events in autumn 2019. You're about to hear from Dr. Thomas Williams with a talk about his book, Viking London. While we're not currently holding live events, we are running a series of fortnightly virtual lectures on various different historical topics. You can find out more about them on our website at historyextra.com forward slash events. Now, Here's Thomas Williams talking about how far the current capital city of the UK was changed and developed by the Vikings from the 8th to the 11th centuries.
3: Well, good good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Um, As Rob says, this talk is going to be about uh, London in the Viking Age. More specifically, it's about the, the impact of the Vikings on that city and the ghosts that the Vikings left behind. Um, but given the, the time of year and, and the weather, uh, I wanted to begin with something a little bit spookier. So I want to set off with some words from Charles Dickens's The Uncommercial Traveller of 1859. One of my best beloved churchyards I call the churchyard of St. Ghastly Grimm. Touching what men in general call it, I have no information. I, I do have some information, so we'll, we'll come back to that. It lies at the heart of the city, and the Blackwall railway shrieks at it daily. It is a small, small churchyard with a ferocious, strong, spiked iron gate, like a jail. This gate is ornamented with skulls and crossbones larger than the life wrought in stone, but it likewise came into the mind of St. Ghastly Grimm that to stick iron spikes atop of the stone skulls as though they were impaled would be a pleasant device. Therefore, the skulls grin aloft horribly, thrust through and through with iron spears. Hence, there is attraction of repulsion for me in St. Ghastly Grimm, and having often contemplated it in the daylight and the dark, I once felt drawn toward it in a thunderstorm at midnight. Why not? I said in self-excuse. I have been to see the Colosseum by the light of the moon. Haven't we all? (laughs) Is it worse to go to see St. Garstley Grimm by the light of the lightning? I repaired to the saint in a hackney cab and found the skulls most effective, having the air of a public execution, and seeming as the lightning flashed to wink and grin with the pain of the spikes. Having no other person to whom to impart my satisfaction, I communicated it to the driver. So far from being responsive, he surveyed me, was naturally a bottle-nosed, red-faced man with a blanched countenance. And as he drove me back, he ever and again glanced over his shoulder through the little front window of his carriage, mistrusting that I was a fair originally from a grave in the churchyard of St. Ghastly Grimm, who might have flitted home again without paying." <laughs> so is <this laughs> a total digression because Even the the stonework you see here has got nothing to do with the Vikings. It's 18th century stonework, the skulls and spikes and all of it. But this is how Charles Dickens described the church, better known as St. Olaf Hart Street. And the church, in fact, is one of London's oldest. Um, We have records of it that date from the 13th century. Um, And it's famous for a number of reasons, not least the fact that it's the burial place of Samuel Pepys, London's great diarist and that it's a rare survival of the Great Fire, uh, of course, radically remodelled since the Middle Ages. But nevertheless, the core, core of it is a medieval building. But it's the dedication to St. Olaf, uh, not St. Not Ghastly Grimm, that concerns us the most. It's one of six churches in London dedicated to the Norwegian St. Olaf, most of which are, uh, are no more in one way or another. Uh, and they are St. Olaf Broad Street, St. Olaf Silver Street, St. Olaf Old Jewry. St. Olaf Hart Street, St. Nicholas Olaf on Bread Street, and St. Olaf Southwark on Tooley Street. Now, for the most part, these are uh, truly just the ghosts of churches. They've been taken by the fire or or destroyed destroyed by the Luftwaffe. Um, This, for example, is St. Olaf Silver Street, which is just a scar in the city fabric now. It's a a memorial garden. Possibly the oldest of all of them is St. Olaf, Southwark on Tooley Street. And we know the name of one priest, uh, St. Peter, sorry, Peter of St. Olaf, was alive in 1096, so the church obviously predates his time. Uh, And it lay at the southern end of the old London Bridge, a few hundred metres east of where the modern bridge now crosses the Thames. Uh, Its site is now occupied by this building. (laughs) Which is quite a wonderful building actually in its own right. It's a lovely Art Deco 1931 building. It was was built as the uh, the headquarters of the Hayes Wharf Company. Um, But it stands on the site of the original medieval church of of St. Olaf and in fact there's a little mural that depicts the the king uh, on its corner. now, this saint, St. Olaf, that all these churches were dedicated to was the king of Norway, Olaf Haraldsson, who died at the Battle of Stiklestad in Norway in 1030. He fell beside a stone that, on the battlefield, which later marked the spot of, the, of Nidaros Cathedral. Nidaros Cathedral was erected over the place that he had died. And immediately, his body started working miracles, apparently. So the first recorded was his, his uh, spear carrier, a chap called Thor Hund, was wounded in the battle, but he touched the, the blood of the dead king and it immediately and miraculously healed. And the cult of King Olaf, swiftly Saint Olaf, spread very, very rapidly after his death. Now Olaf was also in England, but the, the thing that he was most famous for in this country was tearing down London Bridge in 1014. Now. Snorri Sturluson, who, uh, writing the 13th century, a great compendia of, of uh, sagas of, of kings of Norway, imagined that this 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 occurred, this, this incident, when Olaf was fighting as an ally of the English king, Æthelred. Um, but this is extremely dubious uh, for, for all sorts of reasons that are quite complicated and not, not really worth getting into now. But his account, what happened, is fascinating. So I, I read to you now from from Heims Kringler. London Bridge was so wide that wagons could be driven over in both directions at once, with strongholds and wooden breastworks on the downstream side that came up waist high. And under the arches were stakes, and they stood down in the river just under the surface. Olaf, he says, had great hurdles made of withies and wet branches, and had wickerwork houses taken to pieces, and had these put across his ships far enough to reach over both sides. Underneath, he had poles put that were thick and high enough for it to be possible to fight from underneath and for it to withstand stones if they were dropped on top. And When the army was ready, then they rode forward along the river to attack from below. The force of Norwegians rode right up under the arches and put chains around the posts that supported the arches. And they took hold of them and ro- rode all the ships downstream as hard as they could. And Because an armed host was standing packed together on the arches and the posts were broken below, the arches collapsed, and many of the people fell down at the river, and all the rest of the force fled, some into the city and some into Southwark. And this image is obviously a, a recreation of this, of this moment, the bridge collapsing. Of course, Snorri's description of London Bridge dates from the 13th century, so it may well be describing a bridge of the 13th century rather than the bridge as it appeared in the 11th century. But, you know, it's unlikely to have been radically different. So it's quite a vivid and evocative um, image. Now, forgetting about what Snorri thought had happened, what we're left with is a tremendous irony, really, that a church... To venerate the saintly Olaf stood looking over the southern end of a bridge that he himself had vandalized in quite dramatic fashion in the best or possibly worst traditions of the Viking Raider. And it's emblematic of how we remember uh, the Vikings. They, like Olaf, are a contradiction very often in English history, capable of embodying both the sacred and the profane of doing lasting damage, but also leaving a lasting cultural legacy. So in the rest of this talk, I want to sketch out the chronology of um, that interaction and the different sorts of legacies that the Vikings left uh, and see if we can get a glimpse of some of the ghosts that they left behind. Oh, yes, yeah, so that's the, um, that's the mural, obviously. So to start this story, we need to backtrack to the beginning of the Viking Age. And the first Viking raids on Britain occurred at the end of the 8th century in the 790s. There were raids on Lindisfarne in Northumbria and on Portland in Dorset uh, on the south coast. So, up here and down here. Um, At this time, London was controlled by King Offa of Mercia. Mercia, at this point, was the most powerful of the many English kingdoms. Uh, And London was a prosperous place. And some of this can be explained by its location. Um, It was at a crossroads, really, with many of the patchwork of Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, Sussex, Kent, Essex, East Anglia, Mercia, Wessex and on the Thames, which naturally formed a a, a very useful communication route, but also with easy access to the coast. So it became something of a trading hub for Britain. It also has excellent trading links to the continent as well. And we know that Offa and Charlemagne were engaged in in communications, and we have evidence of trade from the Carolingian world, the Frankish world, uh, into into London, as well as to other trading sites around, around Britain. Now, London had, of course, been a major urban centre in the past. The Romans had left a place that was hugely impressive, with a vast basilica, an amphitheatre, a complete set of masonry walls, Um, the rough footprint enclosing what is now the City of London. But the site of the Anglo-Saxon city in Offa's Day was not within the old Roman walls. Uh, It was in a a location off to the west. And there's a a fragment of the old Roman city wall as it goes off into the Barbican estate in the north of the the city. Um, The Anglo-Saxon city was to the west in what is now Covent Garden and along the Strand. And it was organised basically around two major roads. So Watling Street, which followed the line of Oxford Street to the, the north, northwest and the Strand that ran along the bottom. Now Strand in Old English means beach, um, which gives you a clue to um, how it was imagined at the time by those who used it. This was, in fact, the original beachfront to the Thames. So the, 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 the river... Uh, was much closer to the Strand then than it is now. And it formed um, a a beach market or access to a beach market. And we've got great archaeological evidence of of, um, timber embankments uh, and uh, the evidence of trade, of coins and of, of, of imports from locations like Victoria Embankment Gardens and so on. In addition, archaeological excavations around particularly the Royal Opera House have revealed a great deal of, of um, uh, industry and craft production. People were weaving textiles, people were um, engaged in smithying, people were keeping animals, and people were living uh, in timber-built homes on streets that radiated out all around Seven Dials, Long Acre, Neal Street, this kind of neck of the woods. So it was a busy place. It was a prosperous, thriving place at the beginning of the, uh, of the Viking Age. Now, over the decades that followed uh, 800, this settlement was actually on the decline. So we have less evidence of its prosperity going, going into the ninth century. Nevertheless, a hoard of coins, 250 silver coins, um, dated to the year 842, was discovered at Middle Temple. Um, now, the year. 842 was an important one for London. Uh, and it's a date that gives context for why someone might bury a hoard of 250 silver coins in the first place. So this is a, a, a reconstruction, artist reconstruction, of how London Week may have looked. We, we now know, in fact, that a lot of this area would have been infilled with, with, um, with buildings. But broadly speaking, it gives you a flavor of how it would have looked. So the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle relates that in the year 842, there was a great slaughter in London, and in Quintovitch, and in Rochester. In an entry for the same year, the Annals of Saint-Bertin, a Frankish set of annals, names these raiders as Northmen. Um, So the Vikings had come to London. And we don't know that this was the first time the Vikings had come to London. We simply know that it's it's the first time we know that the Vikings had come to London. And it was clearly an incident that was important enough to be remembered and to be recorded in the late 9th century when the Chronicle was first written down. Um, It wasn't the last time. Uh, In 851, another Viking fleet arrived. This time it was an enormous fleet of 350, ships according to the chronicle. Now whether you believe that figure or not, it is broadly, um, it can be broadly benchmarked against other chronicle accounts, unconnected chronicle accounts, so probably there's no reason to be too sceptical about that. If they came in ships like these, this is uh, the famous Gokstad ship from Oslo in Norway, each ship would have carried about 30 to 40 uh, rowers who also would have been warriors. So you're looking at at least 12,000 men in a fleet of 350 ships. So this was something substantial. Um, It also marks a point much more broadly when the nature of the Viking threat changed in Britain. From the 850s onwards, large forces began to overwinter in Britain. That is to say that they they didn't go home on the off season. They, they, They stayed around to carry on raiding bringing in supplies when they could by sea, and setting up mobile raiding forces that operated within the country. And um, this seems, for London Wick at any rate, to have been the game changer. Uh, within a dec- decade or two of the, first, of, the, of the second of these raids, of the 850 raid, 851 raid, uh, London Wick was no more. So the Viking wars that devastated Britain, um, that really begin in earnest from around this point, totally transformed the political landscape. This is how uh, the island looked politically um, at the beginning of the Viking Age. Nothing much had changed by 851. Some of these smaller Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, Sussex, Kent, Essex, had been absorbed into the larger kingdoms of Wessex and Mercia by this point. But in essence, um, it's a pretty similar picture. Now, as I say, in 850, uh, the the Vikings spend the whole winter for the first time in southern Britain on the Isle of Thanet. Uh, in 865, a Viking army bigger bigger than any seen before uh, turns up in East Anglia, and it's known to contemporaries at the time as the Great Heathen Horde. And um, its first uh, its first act is to kill both rival claimants to the Northumbrian throne and effectively take that kingdom out as an Anglo-Saxon kingdom. It it survives as a a Viking um, kingdom. But but the great heathen horde had done its work and ended Northumbria as an Anglo-Saxon realm. Uh, In 870, uh, Vikings uh, begin the work of dominating the northern Western Isles of Scotland and the Irish Sea region. This is a longer process, but we, we, we're pretty confident this is, this is the time that it starts to happen. In 870, the same army returns from Northumbria to East Anglia, killing King Edmund of the East Angles and effectively wiping out another Anglo-Saxon kingdom. Uh, in the same year, Dumbarton Rock, which was the, the capital of the British Kingdom of Strathclyde, was um, sacked by Vikings, and that kingdom, although it's not completely destroyed, becomes fundamentally changed as a result. And in 873, Repton, the capital of Anglo-Saxon Mercia, was occupied by the great heathen Horde. The Mercian king Burgred was driven into exile. So, not very long, but the, uh, the political map of Britain was, was totally uh, overturned. What was left, once you factor in um, archaeology, place name studies, and a whole range of other evidence, is a, is a map that resembles something like this, with the red indicating areas of uh, Scandinavian um, political influence, control, and an area down in the south which remains Anglo Saxon. Now, it remains Anglo Saxon because in 878, uh, King Alfred manages to turn the tide to a certain extent. So, a Viking army led by Guthrum, a Viking warlord called Guthrum, into Wessex, briefly very successful, occupies Wessex, drove King Alfred into hiding in Athelney in Somerset. Um, but King Alfred was able to, to, to raise a fresh army, bring it to a place called Eddington. Uh, defeat Guthrum in battle in the same year uh, and force Guthrum to accept Christianity, to take a new name, Stan, and to become Alfred's godson into the bargain. Um, Two years later, Guthrum departs. He'd been hanging about in Gloucester uh, to East Anglia, where he becomes king of East Anglia. The treaty that Alfred and Guthrum drew up in the aftermath of the Battle of Eddington, which is known to historians as the Treaty of Alfred and Guthrum, because there's no other name for it. Um, it's concerned with all sorts of things, but it's particularly interesting that it's con- is it's concerned with boundaries. So in trying to delineate the, the sphere relative spheres of influence of Alfred and Guthrum, it specifies that our boundaries up the Thames, and then up the Lee, and along the Lee into its source, then straight to Bedford, then up the the Ouse to Watling Street. What this shows us is that London, which for for centuries been part of the Mercian kingdom, has now found its way into Alfred's Wessex. It now forms part of Alfred's kingdom just within the boundary that he's drawn up with Guthrum. Now the Lee, this is the River Lee today. Looking down towards Canary Wharf, um, it runs through Stratford, the Olympic Park, Hackney Marshes, all the way up Walthamstow. Stowe. Uh, here it is. What this map shows you is just how close the River Lee actually is to the City of London. Here's the, this is an old map, but the city is uh, that's the Tower of London, isn't it? Here, so the city is. There it is, there's the tower. Uh, those are the city walls uh, and the River Lea is here. So London is just, just at Alfred's outstretched fingers in terms of what he thinks he can control. It's just just at the very, very limits of his reach. And it's important to remember that he clearly felt slightly insecure about, about this new arrangement. Um, The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle in 8.8.6 describes Alfred resetting the city. The, the, the old English verb is which which means a million different things. Um, but it seems, it seems to be using it uh, in the sense of a new beginning for the city. Um, quite exactly what that means is, is, is unclear, because it's, it's obvious that um, London is going through a renaissance slightly before Alfred uh, gets involved. Um, what's important, though, is that the town that he is talking about uh, resetting is not Londonwick. It's London Burr, Fortress London. And what this means is that it's moved from outside the city walls to back inside the city walls. Now, part of the reason that this happens is partly it's obviously a geopolitical thing. You've got Guthrum's kingdom here, you've got Alfred's kingdom here. This is an insecure place for a possession of Alfred's to be sat. Um, more directly, though, we know that the, the camps that were developed by the Viking Great Armies, they roamed around Britain, were not small, you know, temporary garrison. Uh, encampments they were massive affairs. This is a reconstruction of the Viking camp at Torxi in Lincolnshire, the same army that um, uh, conquered Northumbria, conquered East Anglia. This was a huge business so if you think if you think about a town like this, to have something like that parked outside it, it ceases to seem like such a good idea. to to persist in living in your unenclosed timber-built settlement just down the road from these enormous masonry walls. Um, And I think that's got a large part to do with why the focus of the settlement shifts back towards the Roman city. And the Vikings do come to London during this this period. In 871, uh, the the, the Vikings camp at Fulham. Uh, In 873, they come to London. We don't know where but we know that whatever they, wherever they were, it would have looked something like this. Now, as I say, Alfred is, is, is insecure about his control over London. He, he's, he's invested in, in, in promoting himself as the rightful king. Um, one of the things that he, he innovates with is the coinage, and this is a, a London monogram coin, um, which is a new issue from around the same time. that he was resetting London, Um, Alfred on the obverse depicted as a Roman emperor, and on the reverse, a monogram spelling out uh, the name of the city. So I'm going to get this wrong. Uh, L-U-N, sorry, L-U-N-D-I-N. Yeah, you get the idea. <laughs> a, there's the A. There's a little crossbar. But this is a radical thing. We, there, are, there have been monogram coins in the past, but this is something quite, quite dramatically different. And to have the, the, the city monogram so prominent gives you a sense of how important Alfred feels it is to really stamp a claim to it.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring,
2: Visit betterhelp.com/slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H E L P.com/slash history extra.
3: Now, there isn't very much of Alfred's period to be found in London archaeologically. Um, there is a bit of activity around St Paul's, there's a little bit of activity around the waterfront, not very much, and it's not very easily datable which is one of the reasons why Alfred's role in developing the city has come under such such question in recent years. But there's no doubt at all that from this period, London Burr, Fortress London, continues to grow in importance, um, both economically and politically. Um, So this is where we now are. Sorry, I should have put this slide up earlier. But this is where we now are. Here here are the the, um, Roman walls. And as I say, in, in Alfred's day, we're, we're, we're sort of limited to this, this region here. Um, oh, right. Yes, there was something else I was going to say about this. <laughs> so one of the only places that there is any good archaeology from the 880s, 890s is this little spot down here. Um, on the uh, east-west confusion, western side of the city. So what is now Queen Hithe and Bull Wharf was known in Alfred's days Ethelred's Hythe after the, the Mercian elderman who was entrusted with looking after the city. Um, this is Queen Hithe, Ethelred's Hythe as it is today. It's a fascinating spot because it's one of the only places along the, the north bank of the river either bank of the river, where you can still see the original waterfront. So this little scrape of shingle is pretty much where it would have been in Alfred's day. Everything else has been embanked right out into the river. Um, this is Timberhithe, another of uh, Alfred, well the Alfredian um, wards, um, now a, an underpass, High Timber Street. So we move on. So Guthrum dies at the end of the ninth century. Alfred dies at the end of the ninth century. Uh, But for the remainder of Alfred's life, um, the city serves as, I suppose, what you'd call it a forward garrison town. In 893 and 895, the London garrison, specifically the London garrison, attacked Viking raiders elsewhere in the country, particularly in Hertfordshire. Uh, And they're described as, going up the lee in order to um, fight off these these, these warbands and dragging the ships, the Viking ships, back down to London, down the river. And in fact, there, there are some timbers that are thought to be from Scandinavian ships that have been used uh, to, to, to build out parts of the, uh, the London um, embankment, the, the early medieval London embankment. Again, not, not very well datable, but, but interesting in the context of those stories. Um, Despite this, from the time of of Alfred's son, Edward, onwards, the Vikings really ceased to be much of a threat to London in in, in particular. Um, And the Lee itself ceased to be a frontier. And by 927, the campaigns of Edward, uh, his sister Athelflaed, and his son Athelstan had brought West Saxon rule to pretty much all of what is now England. And this is how the map starts to to look. This is in around about 1,000, but but as I say, 927, it was not dissimilar to this. Um, That doesn't mean that the Vikings had gone, uh, because in 981, they came back. And in, uh, in that year, the Vikings raided Southampton. For 35 years, those raids began to pick up in intensity. In 991, a Viking attack on Maldon in Essex, uh, defeated an English army at the Battle of Maldon, famously immortalized in old English poetry. And the English paid the Vikings 10,000 pounds to go away. In 1007, the English find themselves paying the Vikings 36,000 pounds to go away. So it didn't set a particularly good precedent for how to deal with this resurgent Viking threat. And things just get worse and worse into the reign uh, and throughout the reign of uh, King Ethelred II. Ethelred the Unready, as he's known. Um, and it's over this period, over the reign of King Ethelred, that London starts to emerge as a key target, as a wealthy city, is probably the wealthiest city in England, uh, and also as a political prize. Um, this is a wonderful uh, illumination. It's, actually, it's not contemporary with the Viking Age. It's from a, a 13th century, I think, or possibly 12th century um, uh, version of the life of St. Edmund, the East Anglian saint. But it, it it's rather marvelously depicts the island of Britain as a, as a sort of orb with a little fortress city in the middle of it, surrounding it, surrounded by a sea of Viking raiders. And this is the position that London seemed to find itself in for much of the, the late 10th and early 11th centuries. Um, on the 8th of September 994, uh, 94 ships, led by Olaf Tryggvassen, the future king of Norway, uh, and Sven Forkbeard, the future king of Denmark, came up the Thames. Uh, in their assault on London, Olaf and Sven suffered more harm and injury than they ever imagined that any town dwellers would do to them. <laughs> so not, not a resounding success. In 1009, uh, a Viking army led by a warrior known as Thorcall the Tall settled on the Thames for the winter, raiding Essex and, and, and the counties thereabouts. Uh, and again, the chronicler, they often attacked London, but praise be to God it stands sound. They always fared badly there. Indeed, indeed they did. In 1012, uh, Thorkel's army was back to Greenwich this time, just down here in the bottom corner of the map, this time with a captive, uh, Archbishop of Canterbury, Ulfhaer. Now, they used him as a hostage over the winter of that year to try to extort money from the city. Uh, The amount they were asking for was £48,000. To give you some context, £48,000 in in old English money the uh, two hundred and forty pennies to the pound, so we're talking about eleven million five hundred and twenty thousand silver coins, which, if that tribute payment were 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 provided in coins um, would have been hammered out individually one by one now, it probably wasn't all paid in coin um. It was probably, some of it was in bullion and some of it would have been in kind. But nevertheless, the moneyers of London had to work overtime to, to try to raise this sum, an astronomical sum. And we know by this day, London had more moneyers working than anywhere else in, in England, um, 54 moneyers. Uh, it was producing far more coin than than the next three biggest mints put together. So it had become, in effect, the, the, the nation's... Um, piggy bank. Um, and you know, Thorkle was shaking it as hard as he could to try to get, get, the, get the money out of it. Um, and in fact, London did manage to raise this sum. And it was paid. But it all came a bit too late for Archbishop Elfheir. Um, after a drunken feast, he was pelted with, with cow heads and bones uh, until someone put him out of his misery with an axe. Um, <laughs> I shouldn't laugh about it, really. But the the, the 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 chroniclers explain this by saying, well, they were very drunk because there was wine. <laughs> so, so the danger, the danger of the vine to those uninitiated, um, and quite conceivably, it was wine that they'd they'd stolen on its way up the Thames from um, uh, from the continent. Um, Thorkel himself seems to have been a bit bummed out about how this all ended up because his army breaks up at this point. He himself ends up entering the service of the English king, King Ethelred. Um, later, later chroniclers like to think that this was because he was struck by pangs of conscience about this terrible deed that had happened on his watch. It's probably more to do with the fact that he realized that Ethelred was the guy that could raise 48,000 pounds, and probably he was a good bet to have as a boss. Um, But in any case, that's how things ended up. Elf body. Oh, sorry. Huh. Um, When I talk about these tribute payments and the the silver coins, it can seem a bit abstract, but, but this is an actual find from Tiskegaard, Denmark, of, it's fairly small actually, fairly modest. I mean, some of these hoards are vast, but this is a fairly fairly modest hoard of 80-odd coins, um, all minted at the same time in the reign of Ethelred. And um, what's striking about them is, firstly, the fact that they were buried in Denmark, not in England. There are, in fact, more of these found in Scandinavia than, uh, well, more coins of Ethelred's reign are found in Scandinavia than are found in England, full stop. Uh, So that tells you something. But these in particular have never been used. They've never been in circulation. So they look as though they've been struck for the express purpose of handing over um, in the hope that the recipient will go home quietly. A fat chance. Um, So Alf body was taken to uh, St Paul's Cathedral where it um, was, was entombed not for very long as it turned out, but um, the place where he died, the place of his martyrdom, is later the site of St. Alphair's church, Greenwich. Uh, St. Alphair's still stands, although obviously not in its medieval form. This is a a church by Nicholas Hawksmoor that was dedicated in uh, 1718. But the Vikings still weren't done with London. In 1013, Sven Forkbeard, now King of Denmark, attacked London. This time, the inhabitants of the town would not submit but held out against him with full battle because King Ethelred was inside and Thorkel with him. Um, and Sven was forced to give up. Again, a Viking army had failed to capture the city. It was too late, however, for the rest of the kingdom. The rest of the kingdom had thrown in the towel. Uh, and by that point, um, the writing was on the wall and the Londoners were eventually forced to accept that yes, okay, Sven is is the king now. Um, that didn't last very long. He dropped down dead a few weeks later, murdered, so later uh, Anglo-Saxon writers like to think, by the vengeful ghost of the East Anglian king, uh, St. Edmund. Possibly. It was a very, very brief reprieve because uh, Sven's son, uh, a chap called Knut, wasn't particularly keen on letting this this prize go to waste. Uh, and he was back at Greenwich um, in uh, 1016 with London once again in his sights. This is the Royal Naval College at Greenwich. It Probably looked rather different in Knut's day. but. Um, if you think back to that image of the Torxey camp, you have to probably imagine something like that beside the Thames and a river filled with longships. Now we know a bit more about this attack on, on, on London. Um, we know, for example, that Canute, faced with the, the barrier of London Bridge preventing his fleet from coming up the river to encircle completely encircle the city, was forced to innovate. Um, his solution was to dig a canal, or rather have his men dig a canal um, around Southwark, <laughs> which sounds extraordinary until you, you, you realise that actually a lot of Southwark in this period was marshland and, and, and islands. It wasn't very; it wouldn't have been very difficult to excavate, um, and particularly. Um, when we consider the kind of ships that Canute was using, so the eleventh century, early eleventh century, this is the age of the, the the classic long ship, so ships that are much longer than they were white by, by quite extreme ratios and very shallow drafted. This is in fact a replica of a of a, a ship found in Denmark uh, that dates to to the reign of Canute, but they were very shallow drafted, so you wouldn't have had to dig out, you know, a sort of Panama Canal to to get them get them round Southwark. In any case, um, that's what he apparently did. We also have a poem written at the court of Canute in, 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 in the years immediately after the, the siege of London of 1016 called Lithsmana Flocka, an Old Norse poem uh, which translates as The Ship Warrior's Song. And it's preserved quite misleadingly uh, in in Old Norse sagas. Rather, the context is quite misleading. But what we have revels in terrorizing the natives. Um, For example, once again, we feed the raven with the blood of Englishmen. Um, Praises the bloodlust of Thorkel's warriors. They did not fear the sword song. They hunger for battle like elk (laughs) enraged. The whole thing is written for an imagined female audience um, who is expected to be extremely impressed by things like, each morning the lady sees on the bank of the Thames that swords are reddened. The hanged man's raven shall not go hungry. It's great. That's just what you want, isn't it? Um, The hanged man is a, is a, a reference to Odin. So it's a reference to Odin's ravens. And certainly, I mean... Whatever nonsense is included in the poem, certainly there was a great deal of violence that was taking place around the city at this time. So In the 1920s, this cache of Viking weapons was, was, was dug out of the mud of the Thames at the north end of London Bridge. Um, these are very characteristically Viking axes. So certainly weapons that were brought to the city in some way or another by, um, by Scandinavian warriors at this time. Now, despite all the bluster of Lithsman of and later chroniclers of Canute's of court, nothing really disguises the fact that Canute that actually failed again to capture London. Um, of course, he did go on to become king. And London was, again, forced to accept the, 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 uh, the reality of the situation. But he'd failed to take it by force. And it left Canute feeling distinctly bitter towards London. Um, uh, he wouldn't be the last, of course. Um, by this point, so we're talking now about beginning of the 11th century, 1016 becomes king of England. Um, London is Easily the wealthiest and most politically important place in Britain. Now, this is the cotton map, which is the earliest, the earliest map to show the British Isles and anything approaching a, a realistic form. Um, they're down here. But if, if I turn it this way around, medieval maps always have east at the, uh, the top. But if we turn it around to a more familiar orientation, you actually find that it's not a bad effort, actually. Cornwall's a bit big, but. Um, but yeah, there are loads of little islands up there. <laughs> it's not wrong, is it? Um, there are only two cities marked on this, this map of Britain there's uh, London and there's Winchester. Of course. Easily the most important place in the country. And um, what do I have next? Oh, yes, yes. Uh, But London is the biggest. Now, it's not big by by the standards of how the Anglo-Saxons imagined places like Rome to be big or Constantinople to be big. It's still pretty provincial. But in terms of places that are actually worth, they're actually mappable, London is definitely on the map. Now, despite all of this an indisputable fact, Knut never, still never trusted the Londoners. And he spent most of his time at Winchester, uh, here at Winchester. Of course, his bones are over there in the cathedral somewhere, jumbled up with, with, with everybody else's. Um, And he visited a number of of hardships on on the city, uh, London, that is, including a tax of 10,000 pounds that he levied specifically on London, in addition to a general tax of 72,000 pounds that he levied on the country at large to pay his armies, Um, which, by the way, if you took it all together, would be 19,680,000 silver pennies, Um, but with a bonus for London. And um, he also removed the body of Archbishop Elphege, who had been martyred by Thorkel's army in ten thirteen. Ten twelve. And um, took it to Canterbury. Now, the, the the way this is described, it comes off as, a, as some sort of heist. Really, he. First of all, all, he sent men to attack the city walls or to pretend to attack the city walls so that the London garrison would would raise the alarm and go rushing off in the wrong direction. He then had men stationed on London Bridge and in Southwark. And then he himself came up the river by ship when no one was looking, jumped off the side, up to St Paul's, grabbed the body, back on the boat and away before anyone could... You know, throw spears at him. This is, these aren't the actions of a king who feels particularly secure uh, in his uh, most important and powerful city. They're also the actions of a king who is pretty damn keen on making sure that nobody gets the benefit of these wonderful holy remains. So it's quite an illuminating incident. Nevertheless, nevertheless, despite Knut's obvious dislike for London. Um, it's undeniable that Scandinavian people and Scandinavian culture became increasingly prominent from this point onwards. And uh, this is a, a rune stone from Valberga in Sweden, um, which is dated to the, again to the uh, beginning of the 11th century. And um, the inscription reads, "Sven and Volgarter made this monument in memory of Manny and Sven." May God well help their souls, and they lie in London." Now, this perhaps isn't altogether surprising, because you've already heard the number of times that, that, that Scandinavian men came to London and presumably died in their attempts to attack the city. And it's equally conceivable that many of them would have been buried locally. So we have a pretty good, clear context for that. That doesn't mean that suddenly there are loads of Scandinavians living in London. Much more compelling is, is this. Now, this is the so-called St. Paul. I say so-called. It is called the St. Paul's run, Runestone. Um, it was found in the graveyard of St. Paul's Cathedral. And it's a stone carved in you know, the, the extremely distinctive Scandinavian ringerike style not not just in that style, but it's an exceptionally fine example of carving, stone carving in this style. And it also has an inscription that runs up one side of it in runes. Uh, the runes read, Jinna and Toki set this up, dot, 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 and the rest of it's um, missing. It would have been down here somewhere. So this is an incomplete Stone, and we don't know who it was made for, but we do know that Jinnah and Toki are Scandinavian names. Now, what's really interesting about it is that it shows us that not only were there Scandinavian people living in London who wanted a runestone, but that there were Scandinavian people in London who had the means to commission one. This would have been an exceptional investment and that there were people in London who could provide this kind of service, not just the artistic skills to be able to do right up to the minute Scandinavian artwork in stone, but also who could produce literate runic inscriptions. So these are people of wealth who are connected and have access to the right kind of of skills in London. We also know um, that there are a number of powerful individuals of almost certain Scandinavian heritage who were operating in the city in the half century from 1016 onwards. We have, um, that's wrong. We have tovi the Proud, who was a staller. A staller was sort of you know, top level um, administrator, equivalent to a shire reeve if you were in, 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 the, in the shires. Um, we have Ansgar the Staller, who was the grandson of Osgod Clapper, Osgod the Corse, um, at whose daughter's wedding in Lambeth, Canute's son, Harther Canute, died at his drink. <laughs> so you're starting to see this very elite strata of society um, with very clear Scandinavian connections. You also, however, start to see in the, the, the corpus of uh, money is operating in London um, Scandinavian names beginning to appear now money is were not aristocrats they were at the top of society um, and that makes it really more interesting money is were you know good well-to-do bourgeois types you know they'd be able to sit on a on a, on a town council or or uh, a, um, a jury um, and from 1016 onwards, we start to c- come, again, uh, come, up, um, come up against characters like Sigurd and Thorkettle and Ulfkettle and Gauti and Flethi and Grimm and Thor. And these are undoubtedly Viking names, Scandinavian names. doesn't, of course, necessarily mean that they were themselves a Scandinavian heritage. You know, you can call your kids whatever you like. But even if it doesn't suggest that they have Scandinavian heritage, it tells us that Scandinavian fashion, Scandinavian ideas, Scandinavian culture is firmly taking hold. And sadly, I couldn't actually find an image of a Scandinavian moneyer's coin. But this is a coin minted in the reign of Canute. This is when Canute was in a particularly bellicose phase of his career in the 1030s. So he was depicted in a helmet. um, And it's minted in London. Uh, let me see where the mint signature starts, yeah, so L-U-N-D, and that's, a, that's a, a, a standard mint signature for the City of London. So we're coming to the end. Um, what we can see is that during the reign of Canute, as well as his two sons, Harold and Harther canood, London's um, metropolitan scene, its metropolitan elite, if you like, were increasingly looking to Scandinavia for their cultural cues. Uh, and it's in this context that the churches of St Olaf were almost certainly raised. Um, it's the new cult of a Scandinavia warrior saint Supported and promoted uh, in England by people who felt politically and culturally invested in doing so. And so it was in these years, in this half century before 1066, that London could, with some justification, be called a Viking town. After that, of course, everything changes. Thank you
0: that was thomas williams speaking at our 2019 history weekend events his book viking london is out now published by william collins if you enjoyed this talk we'll be running lectures from our history events every saturday on the podcast for the next few weeks And be sure to go to historyextra.com forward slash events for news of our upcoming virtual lecture series. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back tomorrow with the latest in our Everything You Wanted to Know series.